The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So the reflections that I'll be offering for today are always for your consideration. So I always like to remind you of that. So stay close, as I mentioned in the guided meditation, to your own innate wisdom. This is what I'm going to be pointing back to again and again throughout what I'm offering. <coughs> and the rough title of what I mentioned, so I'm getting a cue for my to speak up a little bit, and you might have the volume adjusted yet again. The rough title of what I'm offering is called Living Practice. And this came out of actually the last... Um, several weeks that I spent in end of July and early August out at the Insight Meditation Society where I was helping to teach uh, two retreats with some wonderful colleagues, um, some from Against the Stream community, others from the Insight Meditation Society, and, um, and yet others even from Spirit Rock. And the first retreat was on the Buddha's way to well-being and happiness. And The second retreat was a young adults retreat. And during the young adults retreat, there was a persistent question that kept emerging. And it was like the thread that I could hear throughout everything that was asked during uh, this retreat. And the question was, how and why does practice matter given the state of the world? pretty good question, right? And what I'm going to be offering is a partial, very partial answer uh, to that question. And it's also just to acknowledge it's coming from one particular vantage, one voice, one particular social location. So I offer all of this because I think this is a very alive question and it should be alive for all of us right now. Why does this matter? How and why does practice matter given everything that is going on? And what I'll be offering today is three areas, uh, what I'm calling trust, ethics, and lawfulness. And I'll talk about each of them separately. So there may be this sense that they're linear, but they're not actually linear. So that they are, just like all of the Dharma, it's said to be holographic, which is that any one piece leads to the entirety of the other piece. And so as I'm reflecting on these different areas, just know that um, it's not linear, even though it may sound linear. And that's just because of the way that choosing to speak about it today. So let me start with this first piece, this trust. There's a word from the teachings, uh, and that Pali word is sadha, which is translated sometimes as faith, sometimes as confidence. Uh, I like the word trust. And it has a central place within Buddhist teachings, and that's what I'd like to unpack a little bit. Sharon Salzberg, for those, that, uh, those of you that know Sharon Salzberg, she uh, wrote the book Loving Kindness as well as the book Faith, talks about this as um, this particular word, the way she likes to translate it as to place the heart upon. So what is it that we're placing the heart upon? What is it that we are trusting? And she says that 
we want to know with confidence that we have a heart. So the first thing is to know that we all have this amazing capacity, which is part of these heart qualities. And we also want to know when we're offering our heart that we actually are doing that, that we are placing our heart upon something. Martin Luther King Jr. said it in a slightly different way. He said, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. So what does that mean? Within the teachings, there's a word, ehipasiko, which means come and see. And it's the idea that you don't take anything just because it is said or just because many people say it. You actually use your own intuitive knowing your own ability to check something out. And for me, this is pointing directly to self-respect. That's this insistence on knowing and that we question and wonder from the inside. So this is the first way in which we live practice. It's a living practice. And we all know that the outside world, with its various societal, familial, everything, all the different connections and relationships we have tend to define our inside world if we're not careful. So the outside is actually influencing the inside. I sometimes will use this provocative, intentionally provocative wording of don't give up your authority. Many people will ask me, what do you mean when you say authority? What I'm talking about is staying very close to your own heart and your own mind and that that is trustworthy, and that there's a power in it. So the part that I'd like to unpack today is uh, actually a teaching that comes from the Kalama Sutta. And so this is said to be the famous discourse that welcomes careful examination. So I'll give you the uh, context or the background, because I always think that in any of these, di- these discourses, they're so rich because you get a felt sense of like what was going on when this particular teaching was given. So this was the, the context for the Kalama Sutta. So there was this town of the Kalamas. This was a group of people. And they heard that the Buddha was in town. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. And they, they said, well, you know, we've heard a little bit about this Buddha. And we think it might be a good idea to go and listen. But we have to be honest. There's a lot of teachers that have passed through these parts. A lot of people that have come through this town. And they said a lot of different things. So when the Kalamas first showed up, I love this description because, again, it gives you a felt sense. Some bowed down and sat at one side. So some bowed and prostrated. Some exchanged courteous greetings. Hi, hello, and then sat down. Some saluted the Buddha from afar with a simple gesture. Some announced their name and clan and then sat down. And then some were silent and just sat down. So you get the whole range of kind of, you know, this is what the community was gathering. And there was a whole range of experience. Like, well, okay, who's this? What have they got to say? And one of the Kalamas spoke up and said, so here's the challenge. We have all of these teachers, contemplatives, and I could fill in if this was the modern version, politicians, I could fill in any number of groups of people that are expounding and glorifying and explaining their own doctrine. 
And then they are despising, reviling, and pulling to pieces the doctrines of others. They leave us absolutely uncertain and in doubt which are speaking the truth and which are falsely speaking. So again, you can get this felt sense of like, well, what, you know, what do we do? What do we make of all of this that's going? That's all these conflicting voices. And the Buddha's response was, of course you are uncertain. That's pretty reassuring. There's an acknowledgement. Makes sense to me that you're uncertain. And he said, when there's reasons for doubt, uncertainty arises. And that's the case here. So let me explain a little bit about what might be useful in this kind of environment when there's a lot of uncertainty. And this is what he said. He said, there are 10 things that you should not put your trust in. He said, do not place your trust upon these 10 things. So what are these 10 things? The first is that which you have repeatedly heard. So the mere fact that you have repeatedly heard something does not mean that it's trustworthy. That's the first thing. The second thing, don't place your trust simply upon tradition. Because there's a tradition doesn't mean that it's inherently trustworthy. He said, don't place it in the news. Again, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. This is the actual was rumors, but we can think about news as this spread in a mass scale of things that are said elsewhere and repeated out of context. The fourth was, don't place it upon what is in Scripture. So the fact that it is written in some text or in some you know, language and it's, it actually has a structure and a form and others are practicing according to it and holding it up as Scripture, don't even place your trust in that. Nor upon hypotheticals. So this is, the map is not the territory. So if we just make up these conceptual hypotheticals, said so that's not trustworthy either because it's actually not grounded in what is. Don't place it in these kind of um, philosophical dogmatism, any sense of dogma, or even an axiom, something that seems self-evident on its face. Don't place it in common sense notions. So this is if there's some common sense idea of how something should be, even that don't place your trust upon. This, the next two, which I find particularly refreshing, opinions. So this is the idea of a bias towards a notion that has been pondered over repeatedly. This is an opinion. So don't place your trust there. Don't place it, again, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, experts or pundits, nor upon another's seeming ability. So just because there's a call or claim to authority, don't give up your authority. And lastly, most interestingly, particularly for me, don't give it up to somebody who is said to be the teacher. Don't place your trust even in the teacher. So that's, that's a pretty long, exhaustive list when we start to reflect on this. So then the Kalamas were interested. They're saying, okay, so you told me these 10 things. Now you've got my attention. So what? What do I actually take as the measure of what is trustworthy? And this is where the Buddha said, there are four measures. These four measures, I tell you, are where you can assess 
for yourself what is trustworthy, particularly in the midst of uncertainty. The first is, these things are useful. So what is implied by this? You actually are putting them into practice yourself, and you directly perceive that it is skillful, it is useful, that it has some benefit. That's the first measure. So try it out. The second, these things are not blamable. So this is the idea that when you start to actually put into practice, is it something where either you blame yourself after you've acted, or you're hanging out with a group of relatively wise people, and the reflection is, well, I don't know if that was such a good idea. We can start to feel in, again, the invitation is the felt sense of this, not some external idea of how it should be, but we directly feel in, is this something that is blameworthy or not? And we all have this internal conscience, this internal compass. But we often, it's that little voice that sometimes is there that we kind of know is there, and we just think that if nobody is looking, nobody's around, it really means that it's okay. You know, no one will know except for us, but we still know. We always know, because the awareness is always there. The next one, the Buddha said, well, look around and see generally what are people that you consider wise What is it that they are saying? Not that you put your trust in that, but you kind of triangulate and say, well, these people generally seem like they're pretty wise and they seem to be living a pretty happy, beneficial, helpful life. Then what is it that they seem to be suggesting? And then you go check that out. The fourth measure, which is the most important of all, is that when undertaken and observed. So this is where you see the cause and effect. So when you actually put into practice something, does it lead to your benefit and happiness? Or does it not lead to your benefit and happiness? So again, very pragmatic. But what the Buddha is pointing at is this lived practice. Not an idea of practice, but you're living practice. You're living into this, the felt sense of it. And all of this is not an untethered kind of, you know, completely grounds for any wide open thinking. The Buddha anchored it specifically in examining whether or not the action, the root of the action, is based on what are called the wholesome roots or the unwholesome roots. And this is a teaching on kama or karma in Sanskrit. And this is the way the Buddha ended this particular teaching. So in the Kalama Sutta, the Buddha asked this question. He says, for for people that do not take life, do not steal, do not commit sexual misconduct, and do not tell lies, and support others to do likewise, that is to not tell lies, not commit sexual misconduct, will that be for this person's benefit, for the community's benefit and happiness? This was the question that was left with the Kalamas to reflect on this. So we see directly what are the effects, what are the implications. And just to point out that this is not necessarily an individual experience. This can also be collective. And so what I mean by this is I just recently um, finished this four-year teacher training program with 26 other uh, 
wise beings. That's the best way I can describe it. And there were times when I leaned into the community of wise beings because I needed actually that felt sense of what it was like to place my trust in the collective wisdom of a group so that my one limited perspective was not enough. I needed actually these 26 other views and voices to actually arrive at a place of compassion and wisdom. And so this can also be a collective process that we let go of the idea that we need to do this all on our own. We actually can take refuge in what the Buddha is pointing at, the refuge of Sangha or community. There was a story that I once heard from uh, George Mumford. And for those of you that know George Mumford, um, he's been a long-time practitioner. Um, he's a teacher in the insight tradition. And he also worked with the Chicago Bulls and training them and worked with a number of sports teams. And he described being at uh, an airport. And... It was right after, I think this was right after uh, 9-11 or similar event. And so the um, Homeland Security was there in full force, but it was the armed Homeland Security, so large rifles, you know, fatigues. And he was standing to go up to hand his boarding pass and his driver's license to be able to go through the security checkpoint and eventually get on the plane. And for those of you that haven't met George Mumford, he's a large African-American male. And so he stepped forward, and as he stepped forward, immediately a rifle started to come up. And so what did he do? Well, he could have reacted in that situation, and he describes this, this is his words, where he says, I knew exactly what was happening. I felt rage, I felt confusion, I felt all of these emotions. But he said, I had the presence of mind and the trust in my practice, so living in the practice that moment, to realize that this would not be for my benefit, it would not be for the benefit of the other person, and it would not be for the benefit of the whole. So he stepped back slowly, the rifle went down. And then he asked the question, can you help me understand how I am supposed to board a plane by stepping forward and giving you an ID and a boarding pass, if every time I do that, a rifle is raised to my chest. And in an instant, that shifted what was happening in that largely unconscious for the Homeland Security agent moment. And it was him living into that moment of practice that created a radical shift. Now, that's a high bar when I think about that moment. That is a high, high bar. But this is what this is pointing at. What do you place your trust in? Where do you live your practice? So this is pointing, as I mentioned, at the ethics or these roots, wholesome roots and unwholesome roots. And so we all know that in the Buddhist teachings, there's talked about as these precepts. And there's in the lay um, community, there's the five precepts. And the way that they're worded is you undertake the training too. But as we first start to encounter the precepts, it can often feel like it's a rule rather than a training. It's something that I have to abide by, otherwise there will be negative consequences. 
So this first phase is that we're actually taking on these precepts, these trainings of non-harming, of not taking what is not offered, of not speaking falsely, not committing sexual misconduct, and not using intoxicants to cloud the mind. When we take these on, it often, we set them up initially as a boundary, and when we take them on in this way, we can also inadvertently create an identity. Oh, I'm the ethical one. Right? We pick up this idea that, oh, well, I'm now more ethical than you are because I'm observing these precepts. But this is really where we're not living into the precepts yet. We're not living into this ethical area. So the next step is where we start to actively investigate what each of these trainings is pointing at. And we start to become sensitive to the outcomes of when we actually overstep one of the precepts. What is the outcome when we don't observe one of these precepts? And this is where we move into the lived experience of practice. Again, not as an idea that I need to hold on to these ethical guidelines as like a boundary or as you know an identity of an ethical one. And then this next level, which I find so fascinating in my own experience, is you start to feel when you are actually not aligned. Like, it's, there's no delay. It's like you feel that sense of when you've done something that you know is not in alignment with these basic ethical roots, which is this idea of non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. When we start to actually feel that, it, it, you can feel the rub of it. it. There's a felt, visceral sense of it. So this is an entirely different level where we can live into these ethical principles. And why does this matter? Because... As we develop the sensitivity and the understanding around these different wholesome and unwholesome roots, we start to see how there is a lawfulness, how the wholesome qualities of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, or I might even say non-numbing out would be another way I might talk about it. How when we start to live from these wholesome roots, it leads to greater happiness. And we can constantly check in our own minds what is present in any given moment. What is with the awareness? What is there? And are we acting out of these energies or are we noticing them and then refraining for a moment? And the Buddha says if it were not possible to develop what is wholesome and if developing what is wholesome would not lead to happiness, I would not ask you to undertake such development. Again, pretty pragmatic, right? But because it's possible and because it does lead to happiness, I ask you to develop and do what is wholesome. And we start to see the effects of these unwholesome qualities, which is that if we're overpowered by them, by greed, by hatred, or by numbing out or confusion or ignorance, then it causes harm for ourselves, causes harm for others, and it causes harm in the world, the community, this collective. It also causes mental pain and grief. We don't need uh, you know, a lot to be able to connect with this directly. We know that if we're overwhelmed with one of these states, we can feel it. You can actually feel how the mind gets wrapped and entangled and starts to create all kinds of rationalizations around what's happening. And then, of course, we can act out of this space. So these are the words or the actions. And what this is doing is that those words and actions, when we're acting out of these, uh, when we're overcome by these unwholesome 
forces, then it obscures what's actually underneath, which is this deeper truth of who we are. So it cuts off our capacity to be of benefit in the world. The Buddha talked about it as it actually obscures our true advantage. So what was this true advantage? Well, the true advantage is that, as the Buddha says in a different place, the mind is luminous, but it is obscured by visiting defilements, these visiting energies. The uninstructed person does not know this as it really is. Therefore, for such a person, there is no mental development. So what this means is that we're just getting thrown around from reaction to chain reaction, and we never actually have any sense of being able to come back to what is our true advantage, where we can be of most benefit in the world to ourselves, to others, and to many communities. I'll use again a very provocative phrase. This comes from Dr. Michael Yellowbird. He calls it decolonizing the mind, uprooting that which is colonized before we even knew it. So this is what the Buddha is pointing at. Again, this lived action. And all of this is leading into a direct understanding of what is called lawfulness. And so within the Buddhist teachings, there's a general description. And this is the most general way that lawfulness is described. And again, it's very pragmatic. So as you hear this, see if you can sense this pragmatism. When this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this is not, that is not. From the non-arising of this comes the non-arising of that. So this is a general and the most broadest sense description of causality, cause and effect. And within the commentaries of the Buddhist tradition, there's what are said to be five categories of these different laws. And so I'll read some of them. The first is environmental laws. So this is the idea that the movement of tectonic plates are actually governed by a certain lawfulness, right? Or that the patterns of storms and things that are moving the natural world, weather, that there is a certain cause and effect that happens. And we all know this. We can observe this. Then there's said to be the lawfulness of heredity, which is if you plant an acorn seed or an acorn, not an acorn seed, you plant an acorn, you're going to get an oak. You're not going to get a banana tree. Right? So this is the idea that actually there is a certain lawfulness even in this, uh, what's called heredity. There's the lawfulness of the mind itself. And this is said to be the feeling tone. So in any given moment, something is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. There's a certain lawfulness. This, every time there's a moment of contact with experience, we either experience it as pleasant, unpleasant, or we're kind of numbed out to it. It's kind of neutral. There's perception, which is always operating in a given moment. This is the registering, the recognition, the labeling of what is happening. So when we hear a sound, immediately bird. Oh, I know that is bird. That's perception that's operating in any given moment. And then there's the mental formations. These are the imprints or the conditioning that's triggered when we come into contact with that bird. Oh, bird, that's a memory of when I used to hear birds at the lake, and I love hearing birds at the lake and the lake and all of that. That's what gets triggered once there's a moment of perception. And then finally, consciousness, that which cognizes or knows. So there's a lawfulness to the mind itself. The next one, which is the one that I'll spend just a little bit of time talking about, is 
kama or karma. And this is the one where the Buddha said, this is the one that you really want to pay attention to. Notice this one. And this is human action and its results. And the final one that's talked about in the commentaries is dhamma, or this is said to be the governing relationships and interdependence of everything. So these are the causal elements. What's not in here, which I find refreshing, is societal or social preference. That's not a law. And yet it's often conflated with karma or kama. So Venerable Paiuto, who has this wonderful commentary where he says social preference, and so this is societal codes, this is customs, this is beliefs, are products of human thought. And as such, because they're products of human thought, are related to karma, but they're not the same. And because of this, they're often confused and misunderstanding arises. Social preferences may indeed be instruments for creating social harmony, or they may not. They may indeed be useful to society or they may in fact be harmful. All this depends on whether or not those conventions are established with sufficient understanding and wisdom. So again, pointing back to is there wisdom? And we don't need to look very far to notice, for example, how these social preferences can be so harmful. And I was looking not too long ago, I actually pulled up a research study that was from one of these public health journals that was talking about how if you map uh, discriminatory laws, laws that actually, and by what they meant by this, was laws that revoke rights from people, take them away, you can actually have a, stat- a statistically significant correlation with mental health issues, depression, suicide, all uh, other forms that show up as social anxiety, all these different forms that you can actually map these one-to-one. So what's being pointed at, again, is that social preferences or these societal norms can start to have implications. But the one that the Buddha wants us to pay attention to is this one of karma and going back to what's the intention? Is there understanding and wisdom? And is that wisdom actually rooted in non-confusion, non-delusion, non-greed, and non-hatred? So I'm going to skip over a bit because I want to provide a little bit of time for questions and answers. So let me end with this last little piece. And this is a quote from um, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi. And this is called Socially Engaged Buddhism. Again, notice the theme of everything that I'm sharing is living practice. How do you live into this? So here's what Bhikkhu Bodhi says. I would say that the crucial mission imposed on us by the conditions of our time is to embody a Buddhist conscience in response to the world's suffering. This means that we have to adopt a sense of personal responsibility, arising from our recognition that the task of liberating other sentient beings from suffering is ultimately our own task, and that by working in harmony with other people seeking a better world, we have the capacity to change things. If we can apply the wisdom of the Dharma to save humanity from a plunge into reckless self-destruction, this is certainly enough of a justification for the effort to create a socially engaged Buddhism. Ultimately, we may have no other choice. So the thread of all of this, again, is that we start with our own trust. Place trust in what happens when you start to notice cause and effect. 
then you start to feel into these ethical qualities. When we act from a place of being engaged, not numbed out, a place of non-greed and non-hatred, what are the effects? What are the outcomes? When we don't do that, what are the outcomes? And it's not to judge immediately, but to observe and notice what happens when we do that. And then finally, to remember this place of lawfulness. And this is where, and I think the most succinct way, and this is the last piece I could go on for a while, the last piece that I'll share, where the Buddha laid this out. He said, ethical behavior leads to non-remorse. Non-remorse leads to gladness. Gladness leads to joy. Joy leads to serenity, particularly of the body, a sense of not being agitated. From the serenity comes happiness. From happiness comes the concentrated mind. From the concentrated mind, we know things as they are. From that, we become disenchanted from the way things are not. And knowledge and vision, namely freedom and peace, arise here and now. So this is the lawfulness. So thank you for your kind attention. And I'll open it up for a few minutes of comments. They don't even have to be questions. They can be just reflections from the community. Yeah, I'm Dan. In hearing you, it, it, it just struck me that um, maybe sometimes we have it wrong in how we observe things that are happening. I'm thinking as myself as an older adult that um, maybe as, as youth comes into adulthood and they feel empowered to begin to feel empowered to act about what's going on in society, maybe collectively we should be watching their reaction because those are essentially untainted, uh, relatively speaking, uh, experiences. They're not into the the full uh, channel of of our culture. And their reaction, I'm talking young people coming into adulthood, are, you know, are, are sort of the pangs of their reaction to what our innate justice injustices are going are going on, mm. and and it probably explains why very often it's a youthful movement when when social justice and things like that come up, but uh, you know it's it's just a little different angle on on looking at things that tell me oh yeah am, am I too imbued in into the main culture that I can't feel those reactions, that they're being relatively newbies, if I use the word, are feeling pretty strongly because they don't have the backdrop of the culture. Mm. Thank you. I'm Jean. Um, I really you were right at the end, and I had an experience this week where I, to make a very long story short, I was pulling into a parking spot, and the man who had just backed out took offense by it and he called me like the most hateful thing you could call a woman and I was so upset oh my gosh I and my children were in the car with me and I sat there and just tears were coming to my eyes and and he drove away and he was a young like 30 something white male I thought okay draw on your buddhism like what what can I do here in this moment mm-hmm. I am so angry I like wanted to pull a twanda and just back into him like as he drove by me and and I felt so angry for so long, and I just kept saying, 
he is so angry. I mean, his anger at me was palpable, and it was directed like, you know, you I did this thing. And I was like, I mean, his one second he was delayed in his progress out of the parking lot, and I just really kept saying, okay, how can I be kind to this person? How can we, as a culture, I mean, there are some very angry white men right now who are feeling emboldened to be, I, I've never been called that by a stranger or anyone, frankly, and I thought something is happening in our world right now where all this anger is being like, it's okay to just treat people the way that people are being treated. And, you know, I felt like if I was a person of color, it would have been the worst epithet for that, too. I could just tell from this man that his anger was so deep. And I just Mm. thought, you know, maybe I should write an article about how can we, like, dissipate this anger? How can we direct it in a different way? And I... It was so hard for me to feel compassion for this person, but I yet I'm trying really hard to, and I think that's what that that man in the airport. I just felt like, oh, that. I mean, it's that kind of stuff where you just feel like, oh, I've just been singled out for a part of me that is, you know, the scene in society is less than. Yeah. So anyway, it's a big topic, but I just felt like, oh, thank God for my Buddhism training that I could not just feel this rage for a long period of time. I was able to turn it into something else not easily and it's still there certainly but. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes the um the i love in the tibetan practice they'll talk about it as transmuting the arising of a state so it's like when anger is there there actually is a real clarity in anger it's like there's a certain precision and clarity and yet you know we know that if we act directly out of that space that it's only going to beget more of that state. But if we actually then, it's like alchemy. If we use that state in a way and trust in a practice to, to meet and engage and know, oh, anger is present right now. And with this anger, there's a real clarity. And with this clarity, I then am actually going to choose to move in this particular direction. That actually is, it's sometimes described as taking the unwholesome and moving into the wholesome. Um, so I'm Robin and I think about what you just shared right now and kind of some comments that's been made beforehand. Um, something that pops up to me and what has been popping up for my practice is, um, really underscoring this idea of living in the practice doesn't mean being passive in the practice. Um, the reality, even since Buddha was, was, walking the earth people have been living in suffering we live in suffering in minneapolis on a daily basis and that suffering manifests in different ways for people that doesn't allow them necessarily the options to take an ethical course or the options to trust in politicians or law enforcers and to be able to use wisdom as a way to maneuver um, situations where you do have a gun in your face or when you, you aren't able to pay your rent because we have such poverty wages in this city. And to think that within this practice, it's not just enough for me to say, I empathize. I understand you as a law enforcer in the context of this world, that you have your own suffering, that you're coming into this work day and day, and let's just love it out. That is not the answer itself. Um, and I, what I appreciate, or what I no, what I don't appreciate, and what I don't encourage in this practice is for it to be an intellectual game. 
I don't encourage this to be one where you get wrapped up in the mind about how to really perceive suffering, how you can imagine yourself engaging with suffering when people are actually suffering, when it's happening on on a day-to-day basis. If you read the newspaper, you can say there are rumors or whatever, but people are experiencing that, and I'm surprised Minneapolis isn't burning right now, which is everything that has transpired within the past month. So for me, being in practice, living the precepts, being kind, being at the, the core of it about liberating not only yourself but others from suffering and getting to a place of collective liberation, that requires some active participation that's going to have to happen off the cushion. So if that's not part of yours, then you need to start thinking about how to expand your Buddhism peripheral and how you're really tying with other people's suffering. Um, so for me, that's something that often gets neglected out of these lessons. It's not just to be passive and be like, oh, yeah, the world is fucked up. Yeah, it's fucked up. Take your cushion and your sitting meditations and do something about that. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. Thank you. Well said. We have time for one more. My name is Sharon, and I heard a phrase from David Loy, and it was uh, fierce compassion. And that made so much sense to me because it gives lie to the fact that we are, and I so appreciate what Robin had to say, and I'm, and I'm with you, and I know so many people here are with you, but it's, it's the idea that I can act fiercely in the face of what you described. I can participate, and yet I, I, I do not need to come out of hate. And that, for me, is a very great distinction. That doesn't mean being a saint by any means, but using that's the old Christian background that I had once upon a time, and it's such a relief just to be human and to have all of this practice where I, where it names those characters parts of my character that will keep me deluded so thank you for um thank you for bringing to light something that uh we we need in the world we have a choice thank you so um just to say that let this be the beginning of what it means to living practice right i mean as the there's a wisdom in this community that's emerging with every single comment. So again, it's what is living practice. That's the inquiry I'll leave you with. And not as a, again, not as a conceptual exercise, but what does it mean to actually live practice? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.